Good morning, and um, glad you're here to worship with us on Palm Sunday. It's, uh, I think, an appropriate uh, setting. One of the beautiful things and foreboding things about meeting outside is that you look to the, um, to the east, and there's this overhang of dark clouds. And I think if you were to think about uh, the colors of uh, Passion Week and Easter weekend, You'd have to say that Good Friday was the color of black, Resurrection Sunday was the color of white, and uh, second day, that day in between the crucifixion and resurrection, second day, as well as Palm Sunday, would, would have to be the color of gray. And, um, and that's what we're going to be talking about today. Uh, we're going to be talking about Palm Sunday, the Sunday before Easter. This is four days before Jesus goes to the cross. Uh, this is the beginning of Passover week. And the point of the message here this Palm Sunday is the horror of unbelief at the p- appearance of Jesus. The horror of unbelief at the appearance of Jesus. The more I have looked at Palm Sunday, uh, we call it the triumphal entry of Jesus back into Jerusalem. Why was it the triumphal entry. It was a triumph over a horror of surrounding unbelief that surrounded Jesus. It, on, the, uh, on the surface, it was a triumphal entry of Jesus back into Jerusalem. But underneath, there was a depth of unbelief. There was a depth of hostility that was surrounding Jesus as he entered triumphantly into Jerusalem. And so we're going to look at that this morning. Uh, It's going to be a little bit of a technical sermon. We're going to look at different elements of the environment in which Jesus uh, returned back to Jerusalem. And we want to be asking ourselves in this sermon, where am I in this? What level of unbelief do I have? What level of hostility do I have towards Jesus? What level of unbelief and hostility does the world around me exhibit towards Jesus uh, on this Sunday? And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at the events surrounding Palm Sunday. And we're going to ask ourselves, secondly, where are we in this? And so if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn with me to Luke chapter 19. And we're going to look at verse 28 through 40. Luke chapter 19 verse 28 through 40. And if you want to stand with me now, we'll go ahead and read God's word together. Luke 19, verse 28 through 40. And we pick up the scene in verse 28. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivier, Olivet, sorry, he sent two of the disciples saying, go into the village in front of you where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it, bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. Verse 32, so those who were sent away found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. 
And they brought it to Jesus and throwing their coats on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their coats on the road. And as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory to the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Verse 40, And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Let's pray together. And so this morning, Lord, uh, the stones of our hearts that have been softened with your spirit, uh, we cry out and we say, cry, Lord, save us, help us. We need you. And uh, we do this, Lord, as people who have formerly had hearts of stone because we live in a city that is full of, of hardened hearts. And Father, we recognize this morning that as Jesus entered triumphantly into Jerusalem, as he enters triumphantly into the 21st century, he is surrounded by unbelief and he is surrounded by hostility towards him. And so uh, as we look at this Palm Sunday, on this Palm Sunday, at his entry into this world, may we be reminded of the hardened hearts that surround us and even our own unbelief, our own hostility towards Jesus, um, praising him in one moment, stabbing him in the back in the next, and yet how gracious, how good, how wonderful our Savior is. Um, and so, Lord, may we uh, re- have our minds renewed during this time. In Jesus' name, amen. You can have a seat. Thank you. And so let's look at the events surrounding Jesus' entry into Jerusalem And where are we in this? What was the crowd thinking? What was the crowd doing? They were praising him on the surface, but what was lurking underneath the surface as Jesus entered? So let's look at our passage here in Luke 19. In verse 28, it says, And when he had said these things, which he was talking about the parable of the ten minas, uh, which was before, and uh, how we are to be faithful with the opportunities for good that God gives to us. When he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. Going up to Jerusalem. In the scriptures, it is always going up to Jerusalem. It is not going down to Jerusalem. Even if you are at a higher elevation than Jerusalem, Jerusalem was seen as the high city, the city that you ascend to. And so even if you're geographically higher, it is always portrayed as going up to Jerusalem. And verse 28, uh, this is the culmination now of something that began in Luke chapter 9, verse 51, where it said about six months earlier in Luke chapter 9, there's about a six months journey up until this point. Luke 9, verse 51, it says that as the days drew near for Jesus to be taken up, he set his face towards Jerusalem. And so in Luke 9, Jesus turns his face towards Jerusalem. He knows that the time is coming for him to be crucified. And so he starts a journey. It says in Luke 13, through the villages and through the towns, teaching and journeying 
towards Jerusalem on the six-month journey. And it is immediately before this time that Jesus in Luke 18 and Luke 19 and John 11 had performed many miracles just prior to this time. He had come to Jericho, which is 15 miles to the east of Jerusalem. And in Jericho, it's about a 15-mile uh, walk, about eight-hour walk. In Luke 18 and Luke 19, this was where Jesus had healed a blind man who had come to him and wanting to be healed of his blindness. And Jesus said, now you, your faith has healed you. It was in Luke 19 that uh, Jesus had led Zacchaeus, the, the, uh, the tax collector, to faith, this traitor of the Jewish people. And so Jesus is marching from Jericho, where he had healed a blind man, where he had led Zacchaeus to faith. And he has just come the other day, I think about maybe about two days before or so, from raising Lazarus from the dead in Luke 11 in Bethany. And uh, he has had his feet anointed by, uh, with perfume and wiped with, uh, Mary wiped uh, Jesus' dirty feet with her hair the day before. And so now as he, he's going up to Jerusalem, all is in the context of these miracles, leading people to faith, that he's headed to Jerusalem. And in verse 29, when he draws near to Bethpage and Bethany, these were two small towns that were on the outskirts of Jerusalem, about two miles away, two miles to uh, the east of Jerusalem, verse 29. And he came to a mount called Olivet. And that's an olive grove. It was kind of a, a, a mountaintop area. And in verse 29, he, uh, he turns and he says to two disciples, probably, we, uh, well, we don't know, probably Peter, maybe John, maybe James. And he says to them, in verse 30 through 35, he says, go into the town, go into the village, find a colt, it's never been ridden on, and take it, bring it to me. If the owner asks you, uh, why are you taking it? Say, the Lord has need of it. And so in verse 30 through 35, these disciples, they go into the town, probably Bethany, and they find a colt. What was the significance of this? In Zechariah, the book of Zechariah, chapter 9, verse 9. This is 900 years before this is happening in our passage in Luke 19. 900 years before the prophet Zechariah, in chapter 9, verse 9, had prophesied that the king of Israel, the righteous king, the king who would bring salvation to God's people, will ride in humbly on a donkey. 900 years before this, Zechariah prophesied this. And so as Jesus is telling his disciples to go into the town to find the cult, this is a fulfillment of biblical prophecy. And he says, tell the person who owns a cult, if he talks to you, just say the Lord has need of it and you take it. And it's interesting, you know, normally you might think, well, wait a minute, is Jesus telling them to steal a cult? from someone else? I mean, doesn't this cult belong to this man? And their simple answer is, well, the Lord has need of it, so we're taking it, okay? And it's not actually stealing, because the cult 
belongs to the Lord. The cult, the Lord is the one who gave the owner the cult in the end, the cosmic scheme of things. The cult was simply a pawn to be used in the fulfillment of biblical prophecy. Everything belongs to the Lord. And so if the Lord deems that he wants something, it doesn't belong to us. He's not breaking the law. It all belongs to him in the first place. God has a sovereign purpose for everything. God gets to determine the times and places in which we live. Acts 17. This is why when God commands his people to march into Jericho, you know, all of those, you know, uh, thousands of years earlier or so, whatever it was, and, uh, and, and they just kind of slaughtered the Canaanites and the people who were living there. It wasn't, it wasn't immoral for God to tell his people to do that because God owned the land. God created the people. God declared what was right and what was holy. The Canaanite people were living like barbarians apart from it. God had his promised land for his people. This is a very important point in verse 30. Through 35. It's not just getting a cult to fulfill biblical prophecy. It is a point of God's sovereignty. It's not just a point of God's providence, but it's God's sovereignty that He owns everything. He commands everything in our lives. Everything you and I own right now our health, our finances, the car we drive the house we bought, the clothes we wear, um, the food that we eat, the children that we have, the spouse that we have. It all belongs to God. God can literally say, that donkey that you own, it belongs to me. I have need of it. That health that you have, it belongs to me. I have need of it. And if I determine that you as my creation, you as my child, are better serving me in a way that you may not have chosen for your own life, that donkey belongs to me. And I'm going to use it as a sovereign God for the greater, wider purpose to serve the truth, to serve my glory, to serve what is right, to serve my people. Make no mistake about it. God is entirely in his bounds and often does that. We like to talk about God as, oh God, thank you for this cult that you gave me. It's so beautiful. Uh, It's wonderful, you know, Um, and and I, I cherish it until he takes the cult away. And um, I, I think that the owner probably I don't know what his reaction was. You know, if it was me, I, I might be mixed. I mean, like, oh, my cult that I have. I paid so much money for that. My kids love this cult. Oh, just, uh, why me? Look at all these other cults. You could have taken that. Why me? I might have thought that. But I also might have, hopefully, in my higher, better moments, right? I might have thought, you know what? It's an honor. It's an honor that the Lord would use my life to take my cult for a greater purpose I wouldn't have chosen it for myself. I would have liked to have my cult. But hey, if the Lord wants it, if he needs it, 
if he has determined that this is truly important, okay, then it's, then it's his, and it's an honor. You know, if the, honor, if the owner of the cult was sitting there, and, and he was like, oh, you know what? Um, I, was, I was torturing my cult. I was bad to my cult. And this guy, I, I reap what I sowed. Okay, but he might, you know, have a guilty conscience and say, well, I got what I deserved. But this is probably a situation where it was just a normal situation, and this cult got taken away from him. Do we look at our lives that way? Are we willing to put everything and say, Lord, thank you, but the, the ultimate reality is it is yours. And it will be an honor of me for you to use what is my cult, what I think is my cult for your purposes. If you want to mature in your Christian faith, then you're going to look at your life that way. You're going to look at your faith that way. And sometimes uh, the only way for us to know how mature we are, the only way for us to actually grow up is when the cult gets taken away from us. Because it's really easy to be mature when the cult is ours. And, um, and yet God has his higher purposes and we have to trust in that. We have to trust in that. If you've had your cult taken away from you recently, uh, one of the things the Lord wants you to know this morning is that he wants you to turn to him and say, Lord, this cult that I've been holding on to, it's yours. It's not going to control me. And I'm going to trust you that there's a higher purpose here. I don't like it. I mean, wouldn't have chosen it but I'm going to submit to it. And in that, you will find peace. You will find peace. This guy who got his call taken away from him, can you imagine? Oh my goodness. There's like donkey. And Jesus is riding on my donkey. And this is going to be written about like forever, you know, for all the other people to read about. How fantastic was that? But it wasn't probably the greatest moment for him in the moment. But the Lord has need of it, and uh, he didn't, there's no sense of a struggle, so hopefully he came to the right place. Did you know that Palm Sunday probably didn't happen on a Sunday? All of this tra- that transpired, we call it Palm Sunday, obviously because the church usually meets on Sunday, but most likely this was not Sunday, it was most likely Monday. And there's a reason for that. If you go to Exodus chapter 12, Uh, It's very specifically written out in the law that the Passover lamb was to be chosen four days before Passover. Passover technically was going to be on Friday. This is probably on a Monday. And the Passover lamb, it says, was was to be chosen on the 10th day of the month that came to be known as Nisan. And in this particular year, the 10th day would have been a Monday. Monday. It also says in Exodus 12 that as you choose the Passover lamb and, you bring, and you're supposed to bring it into your home, make it your pet for four days, and four days later, you were to have it slaughtered on the 14th day of what came to be known as Nisan. That would be Friday. And so follow the, the symbolism here. 
Follow the sovereign alignment here of what is happening. The law in the book of Exodus said that you are to take the Passover lamb, which would have been a Monday, into your home. You are to slaughter it on the Passover, which would have been Friday. And Jesus is received into the home of Jerusalem on the same day that people are choosing their Passover lambs to bring them into their home. He is then slaughtered as the Passover human sacrifice as the people are slaughtering their lambs. And it was estimated, by the way, on Passover, uh, there might have been a quarter of a million lambs that were slaughtered on Passover day, the same day that Jesus was sent to the cross. And so you see the parallel there. This is why in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and in the book of Hebrews, Christ is talked about as the Christ, the Passover sacrifice. As the lambs are being brought into the home and sacrificed, Christ is, Christ is being brought into Jerusalem and he is the human sacrifice. In verse 36, after they, uh, they bring, in verse 35, they brought the colt to Jesus. They throw their cloaks on the colt. And they set Jesus on the colt as a makeshift saddle. In verse 36, as he rode along, they spread their coats on the road. Stop there. They spread their coats on the road. In Matthew chapter 21, it says that they cut branches from the trees, which would have been palm trees, and they spread it on the road. So as Jesus is walking, he's walking on a makeshift kind of a processional path of palm trees and coats. Palm trees that were laid out were not normally associated with Passover. They were associated with the Feast of Tabernacles. You know, As you know, every year, Jewish men were required to come into Jerusalem three times a year for three different feasts. There were other feasts, but they were at least required to come into Jerusalem for three different feasts. They were required to come into uh, Jerusalem for the uh, the uh, Feast of, of Pentecost and Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths and the Feast of Passover. And so normally to spread palm trees on the ground, it was, it was associated with the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths that was a commemoration feast of when God's people tabernacled in the wilderness after they were uh, led out of the Exodus. But Palm trees came to be known, palm leaves came to be known as, um, as signs of victory, as signs of joy. And the reason why is because uh, between the Old Testament and the New Testament, okay, from Malachi, which is the last book in the Old Testament, to uh, the appearance, uh, the birth of Jesus in the Gospels, there was about a 400-year span between the Old Testament and the New Testament. That 400-year span is called the intertestamental period between the old ending of the Old Testament, recorded Old Testament, and the beginning of the New Testament with the birth of Christ. That's about 400 years. It's called the intertestamental period. It is in that period, that's where the Catholics get all of their books called the Apocrypha, you know, which the, uh, the church rejected as non-canonical. But in the Apocrypha, in the intertestamental period, there's all these different books. One of the books is called First Maccabees. If you know your history, you know 
that in the intertestamental period, in the second century BC, okay, around 166 AD, all the way to uh, 145, 146 AD, somewhere in this period, a little technical here, but follow with me. In that period, in the mid-second century BC, the Jews rose up. They retook Jerusalem from the Greeks first, secondly from the Syrians. And it was in that uh, latter period when they retook Jerusalem and they were, you know, led by, uh, they came, they came, the, the zealots, or basically zealots, came to be known as Maccabeans. It was in that period when they took Jerusalem, retook it from the Syrians in the latter half of that part, that um, they began to spread palm branches. And uh, in First Maccabees, it says that the palms uh, were spread and they entered with praise. The Jews re-entered Jerusalem with praise and spread palm branches on the ground. So that's probably where they got putting palm branches on the ground at this point for a victory, a joy, a celebration. Jesus is coming into Jerusalem, a triumphal entry, at least from his perspective, and palm branches are being spread much like, and the Jews would be doing that. Oh yeah, we remember when we retook Jerusalem a couple hundred, 150 or so, 200 years earlier, and we spread palm branches. Let's do it again. And so that's where it most likely came from. And as they were doing this, it says in verse 37, he was drawing near, he made his way to the Mount of Olives. The whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Pray, peace in heaven. Glory in the highest. Mark chapter 11 adds the word Hosea, oh, Hosanna in there, Hosanna, which means, you know, blessed King, which means save or help us now. God, help us now. Save us now, we pray. Hosanna. Help us now. Save us now. This is the first time that Jesus publicly accepted public worship. Every other time the crowd would come, oh, we want to make you king, recognize you as Messiah, he would either leave or tell them to stop. Now, picture this scene. This is an enormous scene that's happening here. As Jesus descends down from the Mount of Olives, and he's coming down to Jerusalem. This entire crowd is following him. This crowd that had, you know, seen or heard about Lazarus being resurrected from the dead, seen or heard the blind man being uh, cured of blindness, seen Zacchaeus, his tax collector, be led to faith. And, and he's, he's leading this procession, this crowd coming, descending upon Jerusalem. And then there's this crowd that is gathered together in Jerusalem, coming out to meet Jesus. Remember, this is the Passover, right? And there could have been up to 2 million people in Jerusalem at this time. And so they estimate that the crowd that was surrounding Jesus, that was well, either following him or welcoming him into Jerusalem, it could have been well into the hundreds of thousands of people. That's like a football stadium or more, Right? And so this was an enormous crowd that came out to meet Jesus. And there's this 
sense of celebration. We're, we're celebrating you, Lord, your triumphal entry. And they looked at Jesus and they said, you're our Messiah. You are going to establish the kingdom that was talked about in the Old Testament. You are going to overcome the Roman Empire. You are going to make everything right. And so they're praising him. And the passage goes on to say, in verse 39 and 40, that some of the Pharisees, they, they didn't like the fact that he was being hailed as a Messiah. He said, teacher, rebuke your disciples. No one's listening to them. And verse 40, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. The very stones would cry out. Now, in verse 40, where he says, if these, these people that were giving me public praise were silent, these stones, these rocks, these inanimate objects would cry out. You can take that in one of three ways. Normally, we read this verse and we say, the meaning of this verse in verse 40 is that if the people were silent at Jesus' triumphal entry, if they were silent, Jesus, as the Son of God, is so worthy of praise that God, in his almighty power, could cause inanimate objects like rocks to literally sing the praises of God. You know, the Psalms talk about how the stars and the moon and the earth sing the praises of the Lord, right? And so God could definitely do that because Jesus is to be praised. So that is normally how we look at it. But there's actually some other possible meanings to this verse. A second is actually a reference to Habakkuk chapter 2, where the prophet Habakkuk talks about that stones crying out, the walls crying out as a form of judgment, as a form of judgment. And so another meaning for what Jesus could be saying here is that if people were silent, God could cause the rocks to cry out and cry judgment upon the people for their fake worship and their lack of worship as a form of judgment upon the people. A third meaning for this verse in verse 40, if, you were, if these were silent, the stones would cry out, is a foreshadowing, a foretelling of the future, how the rock, the stony, hardened hearts of the Gentiles would ultimately cry out to praise God if Israel did not praise Jesus. And we know that that came to pass. Now, why do we call this time the horror of unbelief at the appearance of Jesus? It, I mean, he says this right in your Bibles, the triumphal entry, right? Shouldn't this be about Jesus's triumphal entry into Jerusalem as a time of great celebration? They're saying, praise you, bless you, King. Verse 38, Lord, peace and glory to the highest. Isn't this genuine praise? Why would we refer to this as the horror of unbelief at the appearance of Jesus? It is the horror of not Jesus' unbelief. It's the horror of the people's unbelief. That what they were doing was giving fake praise. They had a misguided idea of why Jesus was there. But it was more than that. The surrounding environment of what was happening in the triumphal entry was this chaotic series of events, both before and during and after 
And Jesus knew this. He knew that as he was riding into Jerusalem on a donkey in fulfillment of biblical prophecy, and he was hearing all this praise, it wasn't much of a coronation. He knew it was fake. And he knew not only were the people misguided in who they were thinking he was, what kind of savior he was, but he also knew that there was murderous plots surrounding this triumphal entry. There are murderous plots. Matthew 26 talks about how the chief priests and the elders were looking for a way to kill Jesus, but they were waiting until after the Passover festivities would happen. The crowds would disperse because they didn't want to cause a riot. You know, obviously Jesus died right on time on Passover, but the plan was to murder him after the Passover, Matthew 26. They hated Jesus for saying he's the Messiah. They hated him because he healed on the Sabbath. They hated him because they were jealous of him. Crowds are going to him, not them. We know from the book of John that not only was there a murderous plot to kill Jesus after the Passover, but there was actually a plot to kill Lazarus in Bethany because of his testimony. Lazarus, who was raised from the dead, his testimony was leading people to Christ. There was a plot to kill Lazarus because of that, to stop that as well. So surrounding this triumphal entry is not just unbelief. There's murderous plots. There was also betrayal. The same crowds that were yelling Hosanna, four days later are going to yell crucify him. And Jesus knew the betrayal of the human heart. This is why it says in John chapter 2, Jesus did not entrust himself into the hands of men. Why? Because he knew what was in the heart of man. Sin and betrayal. There was murder, there was betrayal, and there were also tears surrounding this event. Right after he, is en- he comes into the city, he looks around, and it says that in the Gospel of Luke that he cried tears of anguish over Jerusalem. He said to Jerusalem, you have missed the peace that I offered you. You have missed the day of visitation or the day of your salvation. And your enemies will tear down your city, which we know happened about 40 years later when the Romans toppled Jerusalem in 70 AD. And so amidst this triumph, there was unbelief. There was murder, murderous plots. There is a coming betrayal by the crowds. There's tears of Jesus. And it's he, the triumph is really Jesus' triumph over the darkness of the human heart. The triumph is the fact that he still was obedient to his father, knowing how duplicitous the human heart is, how conniving the human heart is. Even those who praise him have ulterior motives. And not only was there an environment of murder, betrayal, tears, but there was also an an environment of righteous anger. Of righteous anger. Jesus went into the temple two times to clear it. The first time happened in John chapter 2. And there's a second time where after this, Jesus comes into the temple a second time. He sees the money changers who had come back, like pigs coming back to the, to the uh, 
to the manure, and he clears it a second time. And Jesus expresses righteous anger right after he enters the temple. And no doubt they came back right after Jesus left, right? And so as we look at Palm Sunday, normally we look at it and we say, how wonderful our Savior who has come into Jerusalem. And look at these people praising him, the praise he deserves from the poor and the oppressed. What was actually happening is something far more insidious. Yes, it was a triumphal entry on Jesus' part. But when we look into the human heart, what we discover is that we can kiss Jesus on the mouth in one moment. We can praise him and stab him in the back in the next. And so we're to ask ourselves on this Sunday, on this Palm Sunday, what fake coats, what fake palm trees are we laying down for Jesus in worship? How is our worship, how is the world's, wor- or the world's worship, fake coats, fake palm leaves of worship? You see this in the world. Is the world laying down fake coats, fake palm trees of worship? What are theirs? I mean, you can look just this past two weeks. Nobody can look at the footage of the cyber rodeo at Tesla in Texas and not call that a religion. Nobody can look at that. Uh, you know, you can buy, drive a Tesla, that's cool. You know, Teslas are nice, right? But when you look at the people who are, who are going to that thing, how they're talking about it and how Musk is the second coming who's going to save the world. I mean, is that not a fake coat and fake palm tree of worship? Nobody can look at the speakers at the Bitcoin 2022 conference in Miami. That also happened this week. And they're talking about these new technologies that will provide salvation to third world countries that will overcome the tyranny of financial institutions and corrupt governments that will deliver your hopes and you for your hopes and dreams. Is that a fake palm tree, a fake coat for many people who have made it their life? You can look at sports. I mean, it's been a bonanza time for sports. NCAA, Masters, beginning of baseball season. Has sports, do we know people who, for whom sports has become the new American religion? Yes, we do. Yes, we do. And you can fill in the blank. The world has its own forms of fake coats and fake palm trees of worship. And I I think I've had to look at my own life and ask myself too, what are my own fake coats and fake palm trees that I'm praising God? Oh, thank you, Lord. When my life is going well. And when it doesn't, I'm in anxiety. You know, I don't, I don't give up my faith. But the idea of worshiping the Lord genuinely, when my donkey gets taken away, the idea of genuinely worshiping the Lord 
even when I have a false conception of what kind of Messiah he's going to be in my life. I've had those moments of fake worship. And I think we need to all ask ourselves the same thing. We have a culture of murder. There is there is environment of murderous plots surrounding Jesus. We have a culture of murder of Jesus. Our world can't re-murder Jesus. But I'll tell you what it can do. It can try and murder the church. It can try and murder the church. Because Jesus lives inside of you who are believers. Does he not? Doesn't the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit of Jesus, live inside of you? Yes, he does. Do we live in a time, a post-Christian and anti-Christian time, where people are trying to literally murder the church? Yes, we do. And we can all figure out ways on how that's happening. And it's going to get worse here in the West. And if the world can't re-murder Jesus, it will try and exterminate the church. And you, that's you. And that's me, by the way. Being here at the church, being a follower, a faithful follower of Jesus Christ in the 21st century, is to live in an environment where a world has murderous plots against you as the church. The world is not your friend. The world will invite you into its solutions of how to make a better place. Yeah, the world will be your friend at that point. But the minute you start taking a stand for holiness, the minute you start not conforming to the world when you're in a group of people in a social setting that are choosing otherwise, they might not even, in fact, they might not even say something against you. They might just ignore you. That's another form of, of trying to exterminate the church. Let's just, we don't have to argue with the church anymore, the world says in a post-Christian context. We can just wish it a fond farewell. Just trying to get rid of the church. And this is the culture we live in. We live in a culture where Jesus is weeping for the coming destruction. He's weeping for the coming destruction. Just like he weeped after the triumphal entry, I think he's weeping today at all of the unbelief. We need to weep for the unbelief of the people around us. We need to be reminded that their destruction will be total. Just as Jesus said, Oh, Jerusalem, you know, you didn't come to me. You didn't, you, you didn't, you didn't see the day of your visitation. And now you're going to be surrounded by your enemies and you're going to be destroyed. Just as Jesus said that after his triumphal entry, the same thing is in the process of happening in Los Angeles. Same thing is happening with the unbelief of the people in your lives. They are going to face destruction eternally in the flames of hell under the wrath of God's judgment. You and I, we are just passing through this. We're just foreigners, exiles, sojourners. Our time is very short. Our time is very short. You cannot believe how fast your time goes by here on this world. 
and then it's gone. It's gone. And, um, and, and so I'm so proud of these guys who grow out and they witnessed in their faith last night. Um, those of you that were at uh, Olive Crest yesterday, the beginning of trying to thaw a hardened heart, an icy heart there. They've been ravaged by the world to share Christ with them. And in any number of ways, those of you that will be giving your testimony at Second Day, I really want to encourage you. If you haven't signed up for Second Day, do something. Use your FUD in your life, your fear, uncertainty, and doubt, to use it redemptively for God. It's your way of weeping. It's your way of saying, I recognize the destruction, as Jesus did. And we also live in an environment, the same environment that surrounded the triumphal entry of a Lord who has righteous anger for the church. Righteous anger. As he went into the temple to clear out the money changers for a second time right after the triumphal entry. I think Jesus looks at the church today and there's plenty of, of whip cords that he could whip. And certainly there's obvious examples of people who tell you, give money to the church so you can become rich. Give money to the church so that, uh, you know, God will bless you. We don't say that church, that's blasphemy. There's plenty of people that do out there. Plenty, there's several mega churches out there, many, that say that kind of nonsense. But that's obvious. But I wonder what Jesus would be righteously angry for in his church. When he looks at the home, you know, the temple was seen as the home of God, the physical manifestation of the home of God here on earth. And we are the church, which is the household of God, the scripture says. What would Jesus need to whip out of us? We may not be greedy for money. Maybe some of us are. We all know the pull of money. But what would he need to whip out of your life? If you gave Jesus free reign to come into your life and say, here's the cord, what would he whip out of it? Um, And I'm even thinking about several areas of my own life. I'm like, you know what? I'd rather whip myself than have Jesus whip it out of me. And so the triumphal entry was a triumph for Jesus. But it was an exposure of the human heart. And as we go into Passion Week, as we go into looking at Easter, the crucifixion, second day, and the resurrection, in preparation for that, I want us to leave this time with a sober-mindedness, an alertness to what is happening in our hearts in terms of our fake worship. And to know that even amidst that, our God, he rides in into our hearts and says, I see you, I see me, and he sees me, sees me. I see your heart, I see the fake palm trees, see the fake coats. I know you're still thinking about the donkey I took away, but... Um, but I am Lord, and I, I'm still going to ride into your heart. I'm not going to leave, and there will be victory here. But I do believe that through this passage, the Lord is asking us to examine 
the murderous plots, the tears, the betrayal, the righteous anger, and the fake worship. And to praise God that even amidst that, how great our God is, that he is with us, he forgives us, he loves us, he is for you, he is not against you, even though he sees that going on in the human heart. Let's pray together. Father, as we close now in our time, I want you guys, I want you to take a moment, I want you to look at your heart, to think, just lift up your heart to the Lord. Say, Lord, examine my heart. You know the areas of weakness. You know the times when you have offered me a window of escape from the temptation, but I've chosen to not take it. You know the times that I've buckled underneath the trial Losing hope, seeing this reveal the very worst parts of me. Lord, you know the times when I have laid down things down at your feet in worship. And yet, uh, in the same days later, given you ample more opportunity uh, to be myself up. Apple opportunity to, of why you were crucified after I was just worshiping you. And, um, and Lord, you are humble and you are sovereign. And so I want to give to you the donkeys that I'm holding on to in my life. I want to confess the areas of the fake palm trees and the fake coats. I want you to triumphantly be declared in my own heart amidst all of this chaotic environment that's happening in my own life. Because just as you rode into Jerusalem and you conquered, you will do the same in my own heart if I allow it. Do I want that? Ask yourself if you want that, you guys. Which side do we want to be on? The crowd or the Savior? Come to the Lord right now and say, Lord, help me. Help me in my unbelief. Thank you, Lord. Lord, would you bless, strengthen our church in this gray moment in the city. be a light to declare the wonders the praises of our God in Jesus name Amen alright let's stand together